Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Murder Mile, a true crime podcast, an audio-guided walk, featuring many of London's untold, unsolved and long-forgotten murders, all set within one square mile of the West End. Today's episode is the unsolved murder of Margaret Cook, a woman whose death is as mysterious as her life itself. And yet, almost 70 years after that tragic day, her death would make British legal history. Murder Mile contains grisly details, which won't be suitable for delicate daisies, as well as realistic sounds, so that, no matter where you listen to this podcast, you'll feel like you're actually there. My name is Michael, I am your tour guide, and this is Murder Mile. Episode 13, Margaret Cook and the Long Confession. Today, I'm on Carnaby Street, a pedestrianised shopping district within spitting distance of Oxford Circus and Regent Street, which over the last few years has been forced to have a much-needed facelift to make it look modern, stylish and funky. And yet, still being synonymous with the swinging 60s, it looks less like a typical London street and more like a tacky Austin Powers-style theme park. Riddled with a kaleidoscope of offensively bright colours, an ever-playing cacophony of Beatles tunes, and it's chocked full of garish British stereotypes, such as minis, beefeaters, red phone boxes, portraits of the Queen, and with everything, everywhere, emblazoned with the Union Jack. Ugh! But Carnaby Street, like most of Soho, is a place of ever-changing fortune, where once the in-crowd would go, before next, it was a no-go zone, swinging from pop groups to gangsters, designers to druggies, pop art to prostitution. Today, it's a street on the up, with neatly restored four-story buildings on both sides of the street and packed full of overpriced fashion outlets for those attention-seeking tosspots with no personality, such as Muji, Pepe Jeans, Dr. Martens, Vans, The Couples, and of course... The Ben Sherman store, where the life of Margaret Cook would end, and her story begins. But to tell her story properly, we can't start at the beginning, 
standing outside 50 Carnby Street in the middle of the 1940s. Instead, we need to go right to the very end of the story, to Canada, in the summer of 2015. A 91-year-old man lies in a clinically white bed in an undisclosed nursing home in Ontario, Canada. We don't know his name, we don't know his address, and we don't know his description. He sits upright in bed, his pyjamas on, a freshly brewed cup of tea in his hand, which he slowly sips. It's a familiar taste that brings flooding back some fond but also some painful memories from his past, the mental scars of which are etched across his pale yellowy skin, his furrowed brow and the heavy bags under his eyes. Although mentally sharp, physically he looks much older than his 91 years, as the stress of decades of emotional guilt and many sleepless nights presses down on his shoulders. Beside him, a heart monitor bleeps. A nurse is on standby as he's carefully fed by intravenous drip a steady concoction of painkillers, glucose and saline to give him some quality of life before his inevitable demise. Having been recently diagnosed with terminal liver cancer and with time running out, he sits upright to make what would become his deathbed confession. Three men sit around him, not family, not friends, but strangers in suits, whose demeanour is calm, considered and cautious, as they quietly question the dying man about his past. Being police detectives, all three are highly experienced in the art of interrogation. But this time, there's no good cop, bad cop routine. There's no coercion, no shouting and no strong-arm tactics that they deploy with any common criminal. As unusually for a murder case, it was the dying man who invited them here, having handed himself in at the local police station just a few days earlier. But unusually for a Canadian murder investigation, only one of the detectives seated around the bed is Canadian. The other two are British, having flown the three and a half thousand miles from the Metropolitan Police's Homicide and Serious Crime Command in London to Ontario in Canada to visit a Canadian national who was once one of their fellow countrymen, who had confessed to the murder of an unnamed woman in the 1940s on Carnaby Street. Armed with the scantest of details, including a basic description of the victim, a location and a rough date, the two detectives trawled through the cold case archives to unearth any solved or unsolved murders which fitted those details. Before him, the detectives placed 12 black and white photos of slightly different but visually similar women. With each photo looking slightly faded, brown and dog-eared at the edges, as if they'd been roughly manhandled many moons ago, and then filed away for the span of at least three generations. With his glasses perched on his nose, the dying man leaned forward to get a closer look at the photos. And although some were blonde, some were brunette, 
some were redhead, and all were in their early to mid-twenties. Out of the twelve, only one drew his attention. And as he held her small tatty photo in his trembling hand, his eyes began to fill with tears, and the heart monitor's beeps got steadily quicker, as with a slowly growing lump in his throat, and his subtle Canadian accent scored with a strangely British twang, the man turned to the homicide detectives and said, It's her. That's the woman I killed. The woman in the photograph was Margaret Cook. Margaret Cook is a true enigma. And as little as we actually know about the night of her death and her murderer himself, we know even less about her life after it began or before it ended. Abandoned shortly after her birth to unidentified parents somewhere in Bradford, West Yorkshire, on an unspecified date in 1920, the unnamed female child was legally adopted by Mrs Dorothy Gladys Willis of Swain House Road in Bolton, who had no children of her own, and named her Margaret Willis. And what started in such an inauspicious, mysterious, and often troubled beginning, continued along the same vein for much of her brief life, as with no formal education, training, or qualifications, all that is known of her formative years is that she spent a short while in Borstal, which is a brutal juvenile prison, repeatedly ran away from home, and one year before her murder, Margaret married a 24-year-old labourer in Bradford called Joseph Cook. But they separated a few months later, after which she moved to London. Being of average height, weight and size, with a striking yet instantly forgettable face, Margaret Willis, also known as Margaret Cook, was forever changing her appearance from brunette to blonde to redhead not just to keep abreast of the latest fashion, but to evade the West End police, with whom she was very well acquainted, having been arrested in an impressively short period for an unspecified number of charges for theft, robbery and solicitation, and always under a variety of different aliases. If you're wondering why I'm not being as pedantic as I usually am, about digging down to the bare bones of the truth of who Margaret Cook was. That's because the original police investigation file on the life and death of Margaret Cook is held in the National Archives until 2024. And given the recent revelations about her potential Canadian killer's confession, that date is likely to be extended even further. So what little evidence there is, is based on a wealth of very unreliable sources none of which I can verify as actual facts. Widely known by those who knew her as a woman of mystery, Margaret Cook was incredibly secretive about what she did, where she lived, and who she shared her life with, with many friends nicknaming her Sealed Lips, and the local police giving her the moniker of Milady, owing to her love of putting on a posh affectation to her voice, pose, and mannerisms, as if she was better off than she actually was, 
and was disguising her real roots, background and identity. And although we know that she briefly lived with a female friend in Devonshire Terrace in the East End, she also lived in at least 20 different locations, rarely returning to the same place twice. And although she was a singer by trade, some sources report that she was a prostitute, an escort and a bride for hire. Even though she was still technically married to Joseph Cook and always wore her platinum wedding ring, it is known for certain that she was an exotic dancer, a stripper and a torch singer at the infamous Blue Lagoon Club at 50 Carnby Street. Now housing the recently renovated Ben Sherman store in all its glass-fronted and wood-panelled glory, 50 Carnaby Street has, for much of the 20th century, been a seedy nightclub of varying infamy. Beginning as Florence Mill's social parlour in the 1930s, the Blue Lagoon in the 1940s, Club 11 and the Sunset Club in the 1950s, the Roaring Twenties in the 1960s, and Columbo's in the 1970s, before it was abandoned in the 1980s, having hosted fledgling bands such as The Who, Queen, The Beatles, and famous British comedians such as Max Bygraves, Tommy Cooper, and Spike Milligan. And although it was suitably situated in the heart of the West End, the Blue Lagoon was not a high-profile night spot, frequented by the great and the good, where the wealthy went, the famous frolicked, and the beautiful boozed, surrounded by a sea of stretch limos, a mountain of mink stoles, and a fountain of freshly fizzing champagne flutes. The Blue Lagoon was a much less classy affair, as having been hidden in a dark, drab, and dingy Soho basement, the club was little more than a front for gambling, bootlegging, hawking, drug dealing, and prostitution. It was a notorious hangout for every West End wastrel, East End gangster and local ne'er-do-well, where, before you enter, you'd have to hand in your hat, coat and gun at the cloakroom, and where fistfights were frequent, police raids were plentiful, and even in its brief history, it had its fair share of murders, including that of Margaret Cook. If, like me, you're British. There's one teeny tiny little detail in that last sentence which has probably got you a little bit confused. And it's this. That at the Blue Lagoon, before you entered the club, there was a cloakroom where you had to hand in your hat, your coat, and your gun. Which begs the question, what kind of a hellhole was this? where the staff half expected its ragtag bag of questionable clientele to turn up to a fun night out, all suited, booted, and packing a pistol. Well, in that regard, it was a very normal nightclub, with exactly the same firearms policy as almost every other British venue in the 1940s. You see, as much as we may criticise the lax gun laws of other countries... Gun control in the United Kingdom is still a relatively new concept. Before 1900, almost any British citizen could carry a gun. By 1903, the government introduced the first permit and age restriction 
which limited children and some teenagers access to weapons. By 1919, a mandatory firearms certificate was introduced, meaning you had to have a good reason why you should own a gun, examples of which included hunting and rat catching. In 1936, short-barreled shotguns and fully automatic weapons were outlawed, and a safe storage policy was introduced to stop guns falling into the wrong hands. And by 1946, the year that Margaret Cook was shot to death, the police deemed self-defence no longer a good enough reason to own a gun. And yet, it wasn't until 1953 that carrying any kind of firearm outside of supervised and permitted areas, for any reason except hunting, was made illegal. Although this may seem like merely an interesting factoid about the state of UK gun control, it actually gives important context to the murder of Margaret Cook, as even though the tabloid press and their dubious sources had suggested that she was shot to death by a pimp, a gangster, a robber or a crook, having become embroiled in a seedy gangland feud involving sex, drugs and dodgy deals. Which you have to admit is a much more exciting story. But surely, she could have been shot by literally anyone. As we've never really had a gun culture in the United Kingdom, there wouldn't have been all that many firearms on the streets, right? Well, that is true, but it wasn't in the mid to late 1940s, as the streets were flooded with legal and illegal firearms. So much so, that even today, many are still being discovered in the hands of collectors and criminals, with some having been brought home by returning servicemen wanting to retain a wartime souvenir, and others being sent in bulk to Britain by America. Following the military failure, but political success of the Battle of Dunkirk, when the Allied troops were forced to retreat back across the English Channel, and the ever-present threat of the Nazi invasion was imminent, with every available weapon in active service, there wasn't enough privately owned firearms to protect the people. So needing a quick but steady supply of guns to protect the homeland, the UK turned to its old ally, the USA. In November 1940, the American Committee for the Defense of British Homes sent out an urgent appeal, which appeared in the American Rifleman magazine, asking for US citizens to donate their pistols, rifles, shotguns and binoculars to the British people. And although many of the firearms were either returned, destroyed or dumped in the channel for fear that our peaceful isle would descend into the Wild West, sadly, a large proportion of guns remained in private ownership and were sold on the black market. And yet, context aside, very little is known about the whereabouts of 26-year-old Margaret Cook on the night of her murder. And what is known is spurious and sketchy at best. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. 
When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plushcare. Plushcare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The evening of Saturday the 10th of November 1946 was a classic British autumn evening. As the weather was as indecisive as always, it was neither raining nor dry. Instead, a light drizzle peppered the air, seeming never to feel wet, and yet everything it touched it soaked, as a blustery wind whipped up the discarded litter that swirled about the darklit streets of Piccadilly. The war was over. The streets should have been a veritable riot of light and colour, with a blackout no longer imposed. But with the infamous lights of Piccadilly Circus still out of action, the streets pockmarked with bomb craters, every other building being unsafe, and almost every street lamp still broken. The only light sources were the passing glow of the occasional car headlight, the dull yellow glow of gaslight, and small pockets of fireworks which illuminated the London skyline, but disappeared into the gloom of the overcast sky. Dressed in a fashionable fawn coat, with a bright pink blouse, a brown checkered dress, and fawn high-heeled shoes, between 8.45pm and 9.10pm, Margaret Cook was witnessed walking the side streets of Soho, such as Great Windmill Street, Denham Street, and Sherwood Street, which all intersect with Brewer Street, the infamous prowling ground and pick-up place for prostitutes and punters. So whether she was on the game that night is debatable, as based on her last known movements, if she was deliberately avoiding Brewer Street, that could either mean she was solely socialising that night, was unwelcome on a rival prostitute's turf, or that she was specifically trying to avoid someone. But that we shall never know. Of course, if she was a working girl, who, like Ginger Ray, didn't live local, and had no place to entertain her punters, then maybe the bomb-damaged side streets were her next best option. As like most out-of-town sex workers who travelled into the West End to try their luck, she serviced her clients in the damp, cold, but ultimately free bomb craters and disused air raid shelters which dotted the streets. But then again, that we shall never know. According to her friends, the ever-secretive Margaret 
whose love life was as mysterious as her natural hair colour, was said to have confided in an unnamed flatmate at her Devonshire Terrace flat that an undisclosed man was trying to extort money from her and that her new boyfriend, whose identity was never revealed, had recently threatened her with a revolver. All of which are easily spurious press reports, which cropped up only in the days after her death. And with no evidence to back this up, it's hard to substantiate whether they are true, half-truths, or outright lies, invented by cash-strapped friends or devious chances, hoping to make a quick quid of a salacious news story. And yet, even the suspiciously scant details of Margaret Cook's actual murder are open to debate, as what we do know doesn't make a hell of a lot of sense. Later that evening, as 50 Carnby Street fizzed and bristled with the excitable buzz of pub-goers, who bustled amongst the dark-lit street, deciding where to go next in the last hours before the dance halls, jazz joints and nefarious nightclubs opened. But busy as it was, the passageway, just to the right of 50 Carnaby Street, where soon enough an eager throng of excitable customers would queue up to enter the infamous Blue Lagoon. The passageway was dark and sparse, all except for the faint glow of cigarette tips from a couple whose conversation, it is said, was heated. Although in shadow, the woman was described as slim, mid-twenties, five foot seven inches tall, and fashionably dressed in a mix of subtle fawn and bright pink, who spoke in a slightly affected posh accent, which was accentuated by her natural northern accent. And although she went by many names, most people knew her as Margaret Cook. In the alley, although what was said is unclear, there was no denying that an argument was taking place. With the unidentified man described as aged 25 to 30, 5 foot 8 or 9 inches tall, with a dark complexion, dressed in a Burberry-style raincoat and a pork pie hat. Was he her boyfriend? Was he her pimp? Was he a customer? That we shall never know. But at 9.35pm, as the fiery exchange between the feuding couple escalated, the numerous spurious sources who reported this fracas have suggested that either Margaret was heard to shout, This man has a gun! Or, I know you have a gun, put it away! Whether or not either phrase was actually said is unclear. But immediately after this, an unidentified man, who according to various sources was either a former policeman, an off-duty copper, or none of the above, attempted to intervene, even though he was unarmed, but was aggressively chastised by Margaret Cook's pork-pie hat-wearing companion, who either shouted, Mind your own business! Or, Get on your way, chum. This has nothing to do with you. Which means the same, but are very different sentences. At which point, the maybe possibly off-duty ex-policeman either stayed or walked away. 
all before her pimp, pal or punter in the pork pie hat, pulled out either a Russian-made .25 caliber pistol or a German-made .30 caliber revolver, and with a single bullet, shot Margaret Cook in the heart. Fearing arrest, he supposedly ran in two different directions, either east down Broadwick Street or north towards Oxford Street, where, although he was chased, he disappeared. His name is unknown. His identity is unknown. And his whereabouts today are unknown. He was never photographed, he was never fingerprinted, and he was never caught. His face was half obscured. He dropped nothing. He wasn't known to the locals. And over the bustling hubbub of the street, and the cacophony of exploding fireworks, his exact accent could not be determined. And although the Met Police's homicide detectives conducted a thorough investigation, they found no gun, no shell casing, and with an entrance wound over her heart and an exit wound in the back, they found no bullet. Sadly, as she lay there, the lifeless body of Margaret Cook slumped against a bricked-up emergency water tank in the shadowy passage of 50 Carnaby Street, with the night being wet and a corpse surrounded by gawkers as the scene wasn't sealed off quick enough. Much of the evidence was lost. And although, just four days later, the Met Police questioned a 27-year-old builder from Strathaven in Lanarkshire, Scotland, called Robert Covey Wilson, who was 5 at 8, with blue eyes, black hair, and a pale complexion, who was muscular, with heavily tattooed forearms and hands, and a scar beneath his chin. A description which, at best, only half fits our suspect. He was released without charge. Along with her ex-husband, Joseph Cook, who on the night of his wife's murder, was in prison in Bradford, 170 miles away, awaiting trial for theft. And although the trashy tabloid press have often lazily attributed the murder of Margaret Cook to the infamous killer known as Soho Jack, a mysterious maniac who supposedly murdered four Soho prostitutes in quick succession, including Ginger Ray, Black Rita and Russian Dora, the murderer of Margaret Cook was never caught. So, I guess you're expecting a big reveal now. A surprise ending. A twist involving an intricate piece of previously undisclosed evidence, unearthed by myself in the National Archives, which conclusively proves, or at least hints, at a possible suspect for the murder of Margaret Cook. I'm sorry to disappoint you. This isn't a fairy tale. This isn't a detective novel. And as with any murder, this doesn't have a happy ending. It remains an unsatisfying story with no obvious conclusion, which leaves us with a series of unanswered questions and no real answers. By its very nature, prostitution is a secretive business. 
And even though, in cases such as the brutal murder of Ginger Ray, where her last known movements were wonderfully documented by those who loved her, in the case of Marguerite Cook, a mysterious outsider who closely guarded her privacy, disguised her roots, and lived a life of secrecy, her murder may never be solved. So what about the confession? What about the 91-year-old British expat lying on his deathbed in an undisclosed nursing home in Canada who confessed to the killing of Margaret Cook? Well, we don't know his name, we don't know his location, and we don't know his description. So whether the dying man was 5 foot 8 or 9 inches tall, with a dark complexion, who was dressed in a Burberry-style raincoat and a pork pie hat, who owned either a Russian-made .25 caliber pistol or a German-made .30 caliber revolver, that we shall never know. What we do know is that he was British, and having served in the army during World War II, he was demobbed in 1945. And five years after the murder of Margaret Cook, not a day, not a week, but five years later, he emigrated to Canada and settled in Ontario, where he became a Canadian citizen, he married, and raised a family. And at the time of the murder, he was 24 years old. Robert Curry Wilson, the heavily tattooed Scotsman with a scar on his chin, who was questioned by the police, was 27. So they can't have been the same man. Not only because, on the passenger manifests from 1951, travelling from the UK to Canada, there is no Robert C. Wilson, born in 1919 but also because he never left the UK and died in the mid-1980s. Just like her husband, Joseph Cook. Which means, as far as known suspects go, we have none. In the summer of 2015, it was reported in the press that the UK Director of Public Prosecutions, Alison Saunders, sought the extradition of the Canadian man to stand trial for the murder of Margaret Cook, as they felt they had a realistic prospect of a conviction, and he had been deemed mentally fit. But as extradition requests are confidential state-to-state -state communications, the Government of Canada can neither confirm nor deny the existence of such a request. But given the dying man's advancing age, medical needs and his declining physical infirmity, and even though, with his confession coming almost 70 years after the murder of Margaret Cook, this is now the longest gap between a crime and a confession in British legal history, it is highly unlikely that he will ever stand trial. But how safe is this confession? As it's never been released, 
and probably won't be in our lifetime. That's hard to tell. But let me ask the question. How reliable is this confession? He's a 91-year-old man dying of liver cancer, a debilitating disease which causes nausea, exhaustion and confusion, whose 70-year-old confession was so full of holes that having supplied the Met Police with such scant details, they returned with 12 possible victims and placed in front of him the tatty dog-eared photos of similar-looking women and then asked him to pick out a face that he last saw in a dark alley on a rainy night just after World War II of a woman whose name he says he didn't know or has since forgotten. Maybe he did murder Margaret Cook, and this truly is his deathbed confession. Maybe the dying man is confused and recalling a murder that he remembers reading about during his time in London. Or maybe he's just a confused and lonely man wanting a little bit of attention before he dies. And two years after his confession, whether he's actually still alive, even that we don't know. Therefore, the murder of Margaret Cook remains unsolved and may never be solved. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. Soon I shall do a catch-up episode. If there are any loose threads on any of the solved or unsolved cases we've discussed in earlier episodes, we can address them there. But in the case of Margaret Cook, good luck. If you like this podcast, please do rate and review us, and share it with your friends. It only takes a second, and it really does mean a lot. You can follow Murder Mile on Twitter and Facebook. Just search for the Murder Mile True Crime Podcast. Murder Mile was researched, written and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult With No Name. Next week's episode is William Stolzer and the Unusual Defence. Thank you for listening and sleep well. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.